Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. You're so very welcome as we journey together through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I must apologise for my croaky voice today. I'm rather under the weather, but having already had to miss a few days over Christmas and New Year, you'll forgive me if I just struggle on so that we don't fall too far behind. Let me remind you that if you are here, there's always the opportunity to subscribe to this podcast, that way ensuring you never miss another single episode. And you can do that by just clicking on the subscribe button from wherever it is you happen to be getting your podcast from. And if you're here for the first time, can I recommend you do that? And you make the decision, along with thousands of others of people around the world, who have made that choice to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of their daily lives. So if you want to find out more on how you can do that, then hang around at the end and I'll give you some further information. So with that all said, I'll leave it there and we'll drop into the main text where we left off last time and I'll see you at the end. Hi friends, welcome back, and today we're going to be picking up a new chapter, Matthew chapter 12, an important chapter with a change of perspective, a change of pace really, and we're going to be considering today the first eight verses. And I've actually given the overall title to today's study, Crisis Looms. You see, in Matthew chapter 12, we read about the beginning of a series of critical events, crucial events, in the life of Jesus. Now in everyone's life there are decisive moments, times and events of which the whole of someone's life can pivot and turn. And this chapter presents to us the story of Jesus and it truly has reached a pivotal point in the life of Jesus. In it we see the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day coming to their final decision regarding him, regarding Jesus and what he has said and done so far and the decision they make is to reject him and his claim of messiahship. It was not only rejection in the sense that they would have nothing to do with him, it was rejection in the sense that they have come to the conclusion in such a way that it's likely that it would mean nothing less than his complete elimination. In other words, they had reached the point where by nature of the decision they made, it seems that his death would be the only proper way to deal with the problem as they saw it. Here in this chapter, we see the first steps of a process, the end of which will be none other than him being nailed to a cross. All the main characters of this impending tragedy are presented clearly before us. On one hand, we have the scribes and the Pharisees, the representatives of the hierarchy of the Jewish religion of their day. And we will see four stages in their increasing attitude of malignant hostility towards Jesus as we work through this chapter. In Matthew chapter 12 verses 1 to 8, today we read the story of how the disciples plucked the ears of corn on the Sabbath day and we see growing suspicion because of this. 
how the scribes and Pharisees regarded with growing hostility and suspicion a teacher who was prepared, as they saw it, to allow his followers to disregard the minutiae of the rules of the Sabbath laws, and how they felt that this kind of teaching, this kind of behaviour, would not be allowed and could not be allowed to be spread unchecked. And then tomorrow, as we progress through the chapter, verses 9 to 14 will tell us the story of the healing of a man with a paralysed hand and the fact that that healing occurs on the Sabbath day. We see a very hostile investigation into that event, and it's not by chance that the scribes and the Pharisees were in the synagogue on that Sabbath day. Luke says they were there with the motivation, the intention of watching Jesus. And from this time on, Jesus would have to work this way. From now on, everything he's done is going to have a malevolent gaze on it, the malevolent eye of the religious leaders of his day. They were going to behave almost like private detectives, seeking and gathering evidence on which they could eventually level charges against him. The religious elite were no longer just happy to watch and to criticize on the sidelines. They were in fact preparing to act. They went into council and they discussed a way to put an end to, as they see it, this disturbing and this, this disrupting man of Galilee. Suspicion was now changing into open, hostile actions. However, we will also see how Jesus will respond to this growing opposition. He will meet it with a courageous defiance and a continual commitment to do the good that is God's will demonstrated particularly in the story of the healing of the man with the paralyzed hand. We'll be looking at that tomorrow, but we will see him also deliberately defying the scribes and the Pharisees. So it would appear that far from evading or avoiding the challenge they're making against him and the charges they're making against him, Jesus is going to meet it head on. He will also meet their verbal accusations made against him, not only by what he does, but by what he says. In other words, he's going to present on a theological level a staggering series of claims about himself. He will actually claim we will discover soon that he is greater than the temple itself. And the temple, of course, was considered the most sacred place in all the world to the Jews of his day. And later in this chapter, he will also say he's greater than the likes of Jonah and Solomon. He will claim that there is nothing that has occurred in the spiritual history of the nation of Israel that is greater than he. There's no apologies here by Jesus. There are statements coming to his claims as Christ and Messiah higher than any he has made before. So we're going to look at these opening eight verses and the first accusation that's made against him in this chapter about breaking the Sabbath law. And it's interesting to see the conclusion he reads. So reading Matthew 12, 1-8 tells us this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pick up some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. 
If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, let's unpack this for a moment and see what's really going on here. In Palestine, at the time of Jesus, the cornfields and the cultivated lands were laid out in long, narrow strips, and the ground between these strips was always considered a right-of-way. It was on one of these strips between the cornfields that the disciples and Jesus are most likely to have been walking when this incident happens. There is absolutely no suggestion that disciples were stealing. The law expressly laid it down that a hungry traveller was entitled to do exactly what the disciples were doing so long as he only used his hands to pluck the ears of corn and did not use any implements or tools like a sickle. Deuteronomy 23.25 prescribes this and allows for this when it says, When you go into your neighbour's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbour's standing grain. You see, in the eyes of the scribes and the Pharisees, the fault of the disciples was not that they had plucked and eaten the grains of corn, but rather that they had done that on the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath laws had become very complicated and very detailed. The commandment itself had done nothing more than forbid work on the Sabbath day. But the interpreters of the law by the time of Jesus were not satisfied with these simple prohibitions as revealed to Moses in Exodus, what we call today the Ten Commandments. They felt that the term work had to be defined. So basically, in this one area, 39 actions were laid down which were things which were forbidden on the Sabbath because they were considered work. Now, interestingly, among those things were things like reaping, winnowing, threshing, and preparing a meal. You see, these legalistic interpreters had not left it at the, the basic law. They had taken each item of the law, each commandment of the law, and broken it down into a list of forbidden works all around that generic idea. And for this one, the term work, they felt, had to be carefully defined and broken up into what, if you like, were sub-laws. In another area, for example, it was forbidden to carry a burden. So then they said, well, what is a burden? So they had to define a burden, and it was decided a burden could be defined as anything which weighed more than two dried figs. Even the slightest suggestion of anything which might symbolically be regarded as work was prohibited when it comes to this prohibition about remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You see, by the time of Jesus, it had been prescribed that to pluck ears of corn while walking along was in fact reaping. Therefore, by their conduct, the disciples were guilty of breaking that rule and more. Far more than one breach of the law, in fact. By plucking the corn, they were guilty of reaping, yes, but by rubbing it in their hands, they were guilty of what was called threshing, and by separating the grain and the chaff before popping it in their mouth, they were guilty of winnowing. And the whole process then fell foul of the rule and the idea about preparing a meal on the Sabbath day. At that time, you see, everything that was to be eaten on the Sabbath was prepared the day before. So to keep these commandments was to keep the law of God, they said, and to break these commandments and to break these subset micro-rules was also to break God's law. 
You see, there's no doubt whatsoever that from their point of view, the scribes and the Pharisees were, by their own definitions, entirely justified in finding fault with the disciples for breaking the law as they defined it. And also that Jesus was guilty of allowing them to do it, if not in fact encouraging them to do so. But what we see here is Jesus' response to those accusations now. He meets the criticism of the scribes and the Pharisees put forward and he does it head on by giving three arguments. The first of these is he quotes the actions of David from 1 Samuel 21 verses 1 to 6. To summarise that, what happened on that occasion was David and his young friends, they were so hungry that they actually went into the tabernacle Bear in mind, this was not the temple, because remember, this happened in the days before the temple had been built. Anyway, they went into the tabernacle and they ate the shewbread, which only the priests were allowed to eat. The shewbread is described for us in some detail in Leviticus 24, but basically it consisted of 12 loaves of bread, which were placed every week in two rows of six in the holy place. They were a sort of symbolic offering, thanksgiving which God was thanks for the gift of providing the people with everything that would sustain them, obviously symbolised by food. These loaves were changed every week, and the old loaves then became the property of the priests, and they could be eaten by them, but only them. Now, on this occasion, in this story from Samuel, in their hunger, David and his friends had entered in and ate those sacred loaves, But after investigation at that time, no fault was attached to them because it was decided that under the spirit of the law, the claims of human need took precedent over any rituals or customs. So that's his first argument, his first response to their accusation. But secondly, he quotes the Sabbath work of the temple itself. The temple rituals always involved work in and of themselves, the kindling of fires the slaughter and the preparation of animals, even the lifting of these dead animals onto the halter and a host of other things could actually be absolutely defined as carrying and lifting a burden. And in fact, you could say that the workload was actually doubled on the Sabbath because on the Sabbath, the offerings were doubled compared to the other days. Now, any of these actions would have been illegal for any ordinary person to perform on the Sabbath day. To light a fire, to slaughter an animal, to lift it up on the altar would have been to break the law as they had defined and hence profane the Sabbath. But for the priests, it was perfectly legal to do those things for the temple worship must go on. The people must be allowed to worship the God Most High. So that, in a way, says that to worship God with an offering took precedence over any other Sabbath rules and regulations. And his third argument is he simply quotes God's word to back this up from, and on this occasion he uses Hosea the prophet, which clearly says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. You see, Jesus is saying what God desires from us is far more than just ritual sacrifice or legalistic rule following. What he wants from us is kindness and love for us to display a spirit which recognizes that there is no higher law than the answer to the call of human need. So in this incident and in response to it, Jesus lays it down that the claim of human need must always take precedent over all other claims. 
the claims of worship, the claims of ritual, the claims of liturgy, they have their place and they are important, but priority over them must always be given to human need. And that need has been a principle ever since. It is basically the motivation and the principle upon which most, if not all, Christian mission and outreach into the world to the needy principle by which it's been established. You see, Jesus is insisting here that the greatest service to God is in the service of our fellow human beings. It is strange to think, with the possible exception of the day as a young boy aged 8, 10, 11, when he visited the synagogue in Nazareth, there's no other evidence documented in the New Testament that Jesus ever conducted a church service in all of his life. But we have abundant evidence that he fed the hungry and comforted the sad and cared for the sick. So, friends, the important thing to grab hold of here is Christian service is not really expressed through the service of liturgy or ritual. It is ultimately expressed, certainly at its highest level, in the service of meeting human needs. Christian service is not expressed by retreating to a monastery. That can be helpful for a time of contemplation, but it's not the high point of Christian service. It should lead, and all those things should lead, to our involvement in the supporting of people by introducing God and God's plan to all people in the midst of all their tragedies and problems and all the demands of the human condition. In other words, to be seen to be meeting the needs of everyone in their everyday problems of life. Okay, there remains in this passage one last verse, one difficult one which is not possible to solve, many believe, without absolute certainty. And this is this last verse when he says, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Most Bible experts have come to the phrase that this phrase has two meanings. Some people say it has one of these meanings. I personally think it means both. So firstly, it means that Jesus himself is actually claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath in the sense that he is entitled to use the Sabbath in any way he sees fits. We have seen that he says the sanctity of the work of the temple is surpassed and even overridden. On occasion, the Sabbath rules and regulations, even in the nation of Israel's history, by the expression of love, healing and mercy. Jesus had claimed and shown that something greater than the temple had arrived in him and through the new insights and perspective he was giving. Therefore, he had the right to dispense with the Sabbath regulations as he saw fit, as he felt it best fitted in with the will of God. And that meant even making that decision on the Sabbath day. And that's the traditional interpretation of this sentence. The other aspect is on this occasion, if you look closely, you'll see Jesus is not actually defending himself here for anything that he did on the Sabbath. He's actually defending his disciples for what they did by taking the grains of corn as they passed through the field. He's defending his disciples on the authority with which they did it. And he's stressing that on that occasion, it was not done just on his own authority, but on the greater authority of meeting human need with the love of God. It can also be noted that when Mark tells of this incident, he introduces another saying of Jesus as part of this climax. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
Now, if we remember that Jesus is pressing here his claims of human need taking precedent, and furthermore, he's saying it's not himself, but it is his disciples he's defending here on this specific occasion, then I believe we can conclude that what Jesus said here by saying the man is not the slave of the Sabbath, he is master of it. He's saying we can use the Sabbath and we have authority to do anything we want to on the Sabbath as long as it glorifies the will of our Father in heaven and it is not only potentially for our own good but for the good of all our fellow human beings. And Jesus here, by what he says, is rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees for enslaving themselves, but more importantly, their fellow human beings under a list of tyrannical regulations. And many would say he's laying down the great principle of Christian freedom to always act and to always love, which applies not only on the Sabbath, but on every other day, as it should in all things of life. Okay, folks, that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope my deep, croaky voice didn't put you off too much, and hopefully we'll see a slight improvement over the next few days. Can I just remind you that there's always a full transcript freely available of everything that I say in these podcasts, and you'll find that by looking at the episode notes page on wherever it is you get your podcasts from. You'll also find links there to other ways you can connect to the ministry. Places like the YouTube channel, which is fast becoming the main archive, the audio archive for all his teaching, helpfully arranged into playlists by chapter and by book, as well as by theme. So the thinking being that as we progress through this project over the years, rather than having to scroll back through hundreds and hundreds of episodes to find something you're looking for, you'll be able to more easily access it on the YouTube channel. Now, although they're videos as such, they're not videos of me visually. We're taking the audio files, editing them down, and just turning them into a video with the scriptures displayed on the screen. But I think you'll find it easier to navigate your way through and find something you're particularly looking for in the future there. But there's also places like my Patreon page, where you can support the ministry, and uh, my personal LinkedIn page. Those are the two places where I tend to put my more formal, structured discipleship type courses. Everything I offer is always freely available in the public domain. You don't have to pay for anything, but the more structured discipleship type courses will more likely appear there, as well as some bonus episodes as well. It's part of my role as what's called here in the UK Although a retired pastoral ministry, I have the role of what's called a pioneer ministry of going and finding intersection points where there is, tends to be no Christian representation. Anyway, you'll find the odd video of that sort of thing placed there. But I do hope you find it all helpful. Now, if you're not seeing active links wherever you get your podcasts from, then just find your way through to the actual host website of this podcast. They're all hosted on the Bible Project at buzzsprout.com and you'll certainly find active links to everything I'm doing there. But with that all said, thank you so much for being part of this journey. What an amazing encouragement to me it is to see what started as a small thing in the pandemic has grown to a worldwide 
community of people who've made the decision to make the studying of the Bible part of the rhythm of their daily lives. We're now being listened to in over 160 countries around the world. Tens of thousands of people have joined us on this journey. So thank you again. I hope you find it helpful. I hope you find it encouraging. Why not consider sharing a link to this so other people can, for free, make the decision to follow some teaching, detailed teaching, on Lord willing, eventually, the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And with that all said, I'll say bye-bye for now, and hopefully see you back here tomorrow, or the next time you choose to join us on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.